1: hockey pdo cast my name is dimitri filipovich and joining me to help me uh do a bit of a free agency but just i guess general off-season summer winners and losers podcast it'll probably be the last season of the show we might do a couple random sort of uh kind of off the beaten trail uh summer shows here on the pdo cast but in terms of actual sort of analysis of what's going on right now in the current nhl this is going to be it and i'm excited to uh for the first time uh have my good buddy harman dial uh come on the show and and chat with me harman what's going on man nothing much glad to be here nice vancouver day it is a nice vancouver day we're recording this it is i'm mixing all the days up man now that we're in off season mode It's, it's wednesday i think uh late afternoon we're gonna probably run this thursday morning so hopefully um i think we're mostly gonna talk about stuff that already has happened so it won't be too time sensitive but obviously let's say we're talking about a team as a massive winner or a loser and then they do something ridiculous in the meantime and you're listening to this uh saturday at the beach and you're why aren't they mentioning it it's because that's how podcasts work um so let's let's get right into this let's let's stop beating around the bush well give me a since you're the guest i'll allow you to start off here with uh your your pick of the litter um you can go glass half full winner side you could go uh pessimistic loser side give me a give me a team that stuck out to you so far with uh some of the moves they made
0: well with florida i mean they they spent definitely among the most cap and and to me i definitely qualify them among the losers category i think you start with the sergey bobrovsky contract a mammoth 10 million uh annually on a seven-year term for a 31 year old who had a down season and you you look at his past year he had a 9.13 save percentage, just 3.4 goals saved above average, so definitely a down year for him. And then you compare his performance to, say, Robin Leonard, who went for $5 uh, million on on a one-year deal, or even Peter Mrazik. Obviously, Bobrovsky's body of work to date is a lot more um, impressive, but right. I think moving forward i'm not sure you're going to get that much more value and and especially when you consider they just drafted spencer knight 13th overall so to make that type of a long-term commitment to a goaltender it's really i don't understand like if i was in dale town's position i would have gone all in on on leonard and and potentially trying to go for a. Uh, A tandem there and maybe it costs you the same cap wise maybe it costs you eight nine ten million but the key there would have been the term and and that way it would have been a lot more easier to integrate Knight and and to have him take over because now the goaltending crease situation it it really is muddied moving forward you never know if a Knight will pan out but if he does it's tough to envision how that will shake out and and beyond that they obviously missed out on Artemi Panarin and brett Connolly, for as fine as his contract was he's not a legit top six guy i'd say he's more of a middle six option nice addition but not the big fish they would have wanted and then beyond that anton strawman that's another that's a really risky bet because he took a huge step back last year he's turning 33 years old 5.5 million times three years based on, on on the evidence that we've seen from last season if last season is indicative of what of the type of performance you're going to get out of him next year, then he's not a legit top four defenseman anymore. And the term really scares me the The last two, two, three years. Of that contract could come back and and really bite them, and so all I, love the, all... I love the last three years. Where you? It's a three year deal, yeah, and I mean, and,
1: and, and that's fair. That's it's it's fair to be instantly worried into heading into year one of that deal. Exactly,
0: and so I think all in all, they spent a whopping roughly twenty million. After you also account for the Anola Achari signing, yep, and they got back a starting goalie, middle six forward, a wild card on defense, and a and a fourth liner. Yeah. So to me, that's. Uh, that's a lot
1: of money spent but not a lot of impact players added yeah talk about the uh the old uh die you know die a hero or or stay around in the nhl long enough to see yourself become a villain like anton strawman was a guy that that um you know people like you and i would definitely have been talking up and talking about as an undervalued asset and a couple of years ago like when tampa signed him from the rangers Similar deal like this, you'd be like, oh, like amazing, very astute signing. This guy's going to play way better than his counting stats indicate. And then now at this point of his career, just based on what we saw last year, I was, that was probably one of the more surprising signings I thought, just because heading into it, I was like, I could see a team taking a chance on him for like one or two years just to see if he can stay healthy maybe they think their medical staff can figure out all of the sort of ailing injuries he's been dealing with the past couple of years in Tampa and and they can reclaim some form and maybe get him like some solid third pairing minutes where he can do some stuff for you but this type of investment it's like they the Panthers clearly believe that he's going to step in there and play like a a lockdown top four role for them full time and that just seems Crazy to me. I don't know what they could have seen over the past, let's say, two seasons that would indicate that you could feel confident at all that that would be the case. Exactly. And I mean, I think if you step back
0: and look two years ago, that perhaps if Strawman had hit free agency uh, before this season, then again, you could, you might have seen that contract as, uh, as, reasonable but at this point he really did take a legitimate step back and at 30 turning 33 years old I can't imagine that things are going to get any better for him and even if you think about Florida's left side defense I can't imagine really him playing with a partner that would elevate his game and and I don't I just don't see the type of defender being there that could keep him that that could elevate and stylistically fit well with him and and ensure that he's viable as a top four option for a lot longer if anything that would have been potentially the case in tampa where where that that group on the back end is pretty pretty solid although they have their their own they're they have have their own fluctuations now with the cap problems and stuff but i just don't think that he's going to be able to recapture his form as a top four defenseman
1: i really wonder what the timing and sort of i'd love like a a play-by-play of what the conversations were like in that room in terms of, like, I I feel like, you know, they were definitely positioned for a long time as our Timmy Panarin favorite as his landing spot just because of bringing in Joel Quenbo, who he had a lot of success with and by all accounts really enjoyed playing under in Chicago, uh, this no-state tax, they cleared up all this money so they can sign both him and Bobrovsky as a package deal. It just made a lot of sense that that was going to be his landing spot for him, and I wonder if, like, They just found out that he was going to go to the Rangers and they're like, oh, crap. Like, well, now we have a bunch more money to play with than we thought we were and just kind of splashed it around a little bit. Like, obviously, they were going to pay Bobrovsky regardless, but even his figure came in at a higher annual salary than I was envisioning. I thought he'd be something like maybe just under nine or nine million for like five or six seasons. That would make him the second highest paid goalie behind Carey Price. That would still take him well into his mid-30s and give him a ton of security. And and when that 10 by seven came in, I was just like... Wow, that is that is pricey. But I guess if you're Dale Talon and I guess you can't fault him for this, he's like turning 70 soon. I don't think he, if you asked him, he gave some true serum, he probably wouldn't believe that he's going to be running the Florida Panthers five years from now when that contract becomes a complete albatross. So he's probably like, you know what? If Borowski comes in, we had the 30th ranked save percentage last year. We were atrocious defensively. If he can come in and make us relevant defensively, at least a little bit, or hold up enough that our forwards can score enough goals to make some playoff noise, and we get in maybe this year, next year, who cares after that? like I, I imagine that is probably, from his perspective, he'll never admit that publicly, but I imagine he was probably at least thinking, at least a little subconscious.
0: Yeah, and I think the the funny thing is, I think it was Garrett Hole who mentioned... it. it if you're a GM at this point, and I guess it's a similar sort of thing, if you think about, for example, Jim Benning signing Tyler Myers, if it works out, great. It buys you a little bit more time and, and you get the immediate short-term benefits. But if it doesn't, well, then chances are, and I mean, I guess in Talon's case, he probably wouldn't be GM of another team. But right. um, say in, in Benning's shoes, for example, if he if he goes to another team, well, then all of a sudden his competitor, he, he's making it tougher for yeah. for his uh,
1: next competition. Now, that's 40 chess right there. That's, I mean... In that case, Peter Shirelli was doing a hell of a job of weakening <laughs> yeah. Oilers. Yeah. And so I think you can
0: you can understand where a lot of these GMs come from, but I think that's on the ownership as well. I think that's when uh, an owner or a president really needs to step in and ensure that whoever's making the final call has the team's uh, best long-term uh, interests in mind as well.
1: Yeah. You, I mean, yeah, that's a, the, you know, Benning's a great example of that Obviously, here in Vancouver. Everyone's like, rightfully pointing out the fact that he has one year left on his deal. they missed the playoffs for four straight seasons. They need to have something to show for it, something for this year beyond just a bunch of Elias Pedersen highlight reels and magic beans and optimism for the future. And we can get into the Tyler signing, signing later and the JT Miller trade. But obviously, like, it just seems crazy to me that anyone would argue that the fact that his future is not secure at the moment with this team wouldn't be a driving force towards making these sort of win-now moves to make your team slightly better in the immediate future, in the immediate like in the present and the immediate future, even if it means sacrificing down the line because that's going to be the ownership's problem. So you're right. In that case, I think it behooves ownership to make sure that the person pulling the strings and running the team is someone who actually has the long-term interest of the team in mind and not just their own personal one.
0: Yeah, and I think specifically in the Canucks' case too, I see a lot of people... Sort of pointing out that in a vacuum, and you can understand where they're coming from, they've made legitimate upgrades. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, talk about the Myers uh, signing and the Miller trade. But a lot, I don't see a lot of people talking about the long-term ramifications of, of trading a future first-round pick away when you're not in that contention window, uh, thinking about what, a, what the fourth and fifth year of a Tyler Myers contract is going to look like. So I think... Their are fans. I mean, and I can understand where they're coming from. I mean, you, you, you're just coming off of the draft. You've excited. You've drafted a couple of exciting new prospects, brought in, brought in some new guys. You're, you're stoked for the upcoming season. You think you got a, a legit chance to make the playoffs, which they do. But I, I just think you need to take a step back in a lot of these situations and, and envision where the team's at in their, in their rebuild. You've, I honestly think at this point we, we can say based off the decisions that they're out of the rebuild, but. Yeah beyond that looking at the longer term picture and if they're really doing their best to position themselves as a uh, long-term Stanley cup contenders.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I guess it's semantics. Maybe in their mind, they feel like they're out of the rebuild and the moves are indicating yeah. that they think they are, um, they, but we'll they see <laughs> where they actually are yeah. in that, in that organizational cycle. Yeah. I mean, listen, we spent like 10 minutes or so here talking about the Panthers. We want to get to the rest of the league. So I don't want to beat this point too much, but I think they they were a clear loser from for me as well, um, just to reinforce what you were saying, purely because, you know, I actually liked all year they were making all these moves where it was like they were telegraphing clearly that they were gonna be big players. Like they're moving out McCann's contract with Bukestad, they're moving out um, you know, Hutchinson, Petrovic, all these guys. They're clearly positioning themselves. They they trade Reimer to get The Darlings contract, which they can more easily buy out, they're clearing up as much caps as they can. And for them to come away with this with Bobrovsky, a nice player and Connolly, and then like a bunch of unknowns, it just seems like a massive swing and a miss. So I, I appreciate the aggressiveness and the fact that they went for it. And also, it does seem like there was a plan in place because they've been gearing up towards this day of July 1st for months now. But it just clearly they wind up swinging and missing and it didn't work out for them and and I think for that reason they're a big loser and and you know to carry on with that theme I also have the Islanders as a loser for me and it's sort of a similar thing and and it's funny I guess whenever you're so close to a guy of Artemi Panarin's caliber um and you wind up missing you don't often have a very solid contingency plan in place just because it was basically Artemi Panarin or not bust, but you weren't going to get an equivalent player in the free agent market of his skill set, and so for an Islanders team that we talked about since the trade deadline, when they were a playoff contender and made the playoffs and made a bit of a run, and then this summer, you know, we like their defense, we like Barry Trotz's system. We we'll talk about the goaltending more here in a second, but I think like their defense is it might not be the best in the league again, but it'll probably be above average. I mean, Barry Trotz's track record speaks for itself there, but. Beyond Matt Barzal, they, they basically just brought back the same team. They paid Jordan Eberly, Brock Nelson, and Anders Lee a ton of money to come back and play for their team and there's no real tangible improvement up front. Now they still have some cap space and we'll see what, what they're gonna do with that, but I just I, you have to put them as a as a loser in my opinion. Not not a huge one, but just from the perspective of they didn't come away with a guy that they spent sort of the past however many weeks uh, positioning themselves to try and go get.
0: Yeah, and I think really the direction of the team is now in a bit of a state of flux moving forward because you miss out on a on a star talent like Panarin and you don't make that addition and all of a sudden you're looking at a team that I I could obviously reasonably reasonably expect them to make the playoffs next season but are they legit cup contenders? They're sort of in that flux where I see them moving within the next few years in that Minnesota Wild type territory where they're consistently making the playoffs. And I, I just don't think they have the firepower offensively to do much damage beyond that. And I think specifically even with the Andres Lee signing, for example, I know he's been a great Islander for a very long yeah. time, but I look at his uh, season this past year, first one without John Tavares. And, and he had obviously 28 goals, but just 51 points in 82 games. And I understand that he has a good two-way profile, but seven years times...
1: Uh, seven million yeah. per. And That's he's what, like twenty eight or something, and, and twenty nine. T- doesn't really profile as the type of guy that I think is going to age too gracefully. Like he's good around the net, yeah. so I think like he'll still maintain his hands and he can. Still, he'll be able to score goals and contribute on the power play. But I don't necessarily think we're going to be like, oh, this guy's thirty three and he's still playing at the top of his game. Like he just doesn't strike. exactly. And player.
0: so I think from that perspective too, I can understand why you have to bring him back once you miss out on a Panarin because you're you, because if you let him walk then. That that would arguably be even worse. It's sort of similar to uh, the Jeff Skinner uh, right. situation in Buffalo, where I guess you kind of just because of the situation have to overpay him because the alternative is letting him walk, and, and then all of a sudden your team's a lot worse in the immediate short term. But long term, I just don't see between the between the Lee Nelson and Eberly contracts, I see a lot of money that
1: could a lot of contract money that could be re- regrettable in a few years. Well, and the really bizarre thing, I think if you told me before July 1st, you know, there's there's going to be two goalies, one's going to get paid 1 million for five uh one one year 5 million for that season. The other goalie's going to get uh 5 million over four seasons. I'd be like, all right, yeah, like I I, I could see the Islanders giving Robin Leonard that type of a four year investment. You know, such a great story, um, culminating in the awards show with that really heartfelt, uh, important speech he gave about uh, mental health and awareness. And he was just a remarkable player last season for them and still young enough where I think he's still only like 27 or 28 years old, even though he's been in the league forever. If you told me that they were going to give him that investment, I'd be like, you know what? I never like giving goalies four years, but in this case, Going to take him into his early 30s. I get it. It Makes sense. Instead, they give it to Semyon Verlamov, who, I mean, he's 31. Um, He's been below average in three of his past four seasons. I mean, his goal saved are minus 2.5, minus 14.4, plus 8.2 two years ago. He was really good. And then 0.6 this year. So he was basically a league average guy. He got his role taken by Philip Grubauer, who uh, asserted himself as the number one in Colorado at the end of the season. And so for me, that was just such a weird um, sort of like lateral slash backwards move for them to take in net. If you told me that Barlamo was going to have a good years, a good year numbers-wise next year, just because he's playing great trots and in that system, I'd believe you. But... It just seems like a weird use of resources. I, you know, I, I know he was probably also similar to Bobrovsky. I think the Islanders maybe thought that they would be able to package him and Panarin together and, and they'd want to play together. And, and that was probably the driving force for it. Because I, I, logically, I can't see why they would go from Leonard considering what he got ultimately from the Blackhawks and settle for what they wound up giving Varlamov, who is an inferior option in my-
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree on that front. And even just from a durability aspect, Varlamov's fought off some pretty serious injuries over the past few years. You look at how many games he's played in 2016-17, just 24 uh, in 2017-51, and then this past season 49. So he hasn't been a consistent 55-plus start goaltender either. So from that perspective, the track record is a little bit wonky there, especially when you're making a four-year commitment to um, a goaltender heading into his 30s. So... Yeah, I agree. I just can't understand why they would make that sort of a commitment when you saw a lot of the other options on on the market. And and to me, Leonard was not only the superior option in the here and now, but moving forward as well.
1: Yeah, especially after we saw what Mazzik got from Carolina. like He was just kind of sitting out there and then they wound up getting him for a great bargain. I thought he might be able to cash in more. And and yeah, it was was bizarre. There must be something else going on there behind the scenes, but from a purely like, ah, nice uh, public information perspective, it seems like a weird fit. Um, Let's... Let's talk about a winner. Give me, give me, give me a winner. We've been way too negative. We're twenty minutes in here and we haven't said anything nice. Well, I think uh, a lot of people, a lot of people outside Toronto might hate this one, but uh, I do think the Leafs had a really good. Look this. Look at this, this Leafs bias. Two guys sitting in a van, in downtown Vancouver apartment talking about hockey. What an East Coast Leaf. Bias. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: pains me to say, but I mean it starts with the Tyson Berry trade, doesn't it? I mean, to be able to obviously trading away Nazem Kadri, he is a far superior player than uh, Alexander Kerfoot. But I think when you have that two-headed monster down the middle of Matthews and Tavares, your third line center doesn't need to be great. And I don't think that in that third line spot, I mean, Kadri didn't have a great year last year. They're just not going to get that much out of it. And Kerfoot, He is really underrated as a two-way driver uh, and beyond that he's consistently put up the last two years 43 and 42 points. So to me Kerfoot looks like a perfect option to slot into the the 3C rule. I don't think that's a huge downgrade when you consider the different situations that um, those those two when you compare him and Kadri would have played in and then beyond that to be able to add Tyson Berry. I know there's a lot of differing opinion in the analytics community of what exactly is he because there are concerns about his defensive play and you look at those results they have been quite erratic on a year-to-year basis right but he's been a prolific offensive uh, producer and he gives them that right shot that they so desperately needed and I think the I really like the idea of being able to pair him next to a good possession driver like a Jake muzzin and I think they could absolutely dominate there and so from that perspective to be able to add a legit top 4 right shot guy he's only got one year left but ultimately all it really cost them was a downgrade at at 3C and they're already really strong up there.
1: Yeah, I love the um I completely agree with you from the perspective of putting Barry w- with a guy like muzzin makes a lot of sense. The big the big loser there is Morgan Riley who after years of playing with incredibly underwhelming you know, anchors as partners finally gets Muzzin last year at the deadline, and we're like, Oh, f- he's finally gonna get a guy you can play with, it's actually good. And then now it looks like he's probably gonna be playing with Cody C. Here, poor guy, poor guy. Here we go again. Um, no, you're right, I think it's amazing. I mean, part of it has to do with uh, teams sort of helping them out, let's say, um, and that's kind of bizarre, but. The Leafs have also created their own luck there. They, you know, especially with the with the Nikita Zaitsev trade they made with Ottawa, they clearly targeted him there as a bit of a sucker and and wound up getting out from under his contract. And so when we headed into, headed into the summer, we were thinking, you know, the Leafs could be in trouble here if if certain things break certain ways, they're really going to be up against the cap wise. And now after that trade, after, you know, it is a big price giving up the first first round pick for Patty Marlowe's contract to be off their books. But, you know, with those two trades and no one jumping at the opportunity to offer Sheet, uh, Kapanen and Janssen, they get those two guys both signed for very, very reasonable medium term deals. And all of a sudden you look at it and they've pretty much dug their way out of their cap issues entirely for the time being. Like. After the, if they put Horton on LTIR, they've got 16.4 million in cap space and only Mitch Marner really left to worry about. And and And, Andrew Foot, though, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we don't don't expect him. Like, yeah, Yeah. they'll be able to get him, especially if they bridge him or something like that. I'm not too worried about that from their perspective. So the point is, like, they can make this all work. And as recently as like three weeks ago, I think we all would have been like, well, something's got to give you. Like, there's no way they're going to be able to bring back all of these guys. And you could argue their team. Got better in the process while they freed up money. And so, you know, that's a testament to um, the work Kyle Dupas did there, obviously. But it is also kind of an indictment against a team like the Senators for sort of willingly helping them out and taking bad contracts off their hands without really making them pay any sort of a tangible price.
0: Yeah. And I think a big part of it is because you you see that. Still, to this point, it's ice time and and offensive production that really drives league-wide perception of yeah. a player, especially when it comes to Zaitsev. I'm sure Dubis would have done a good job of selling him as, mm. hey, this guy played in a, in a shutdown role for us against a Patrice Bergeron line with Jake Muzzin. And, and you can understand... Watching him, that you can, you can sort of talk yourself into saying, "Hey, maybe this guy could in a better uh, in a better situation be a top four guy for us." Because you know he he is great def- defensively off the puck. He he stops the cycles. He, he's a coach's dream in that sense. The problem is he can't make a breakout pass, and and a lot of his physical tools really do sort of um, trick you as well because he's a great skater despite his size. But right. you really do have to dig deeper and sort of look at the objective picture as far as what's happening when he's on the ice. And when you do that, you you come away with the conclusion that many other teams have that Zaitsev isn't really uh, much of a positive force when on the ice, but then you look at a team like Ottawa, that's typically not really invested in analytics and that sort of stuff. And, and, and so for them, I, I, it, if it wasn't Ottawa, I would absolutely have seen another another team stepping up and taking that contract off their hands so it wasn't a huge surprise in that sense because the league still is a little bit behind in how they evaluate defensemen but to me the really interesting thing uh, to look at is and I know we're jumping a little bit ahead is next off season mm-hmm. because both Muzzin and Barry are UFA so I wonder which one of those guys they bring back
1: yeah we'll see I imagine that you know, I think perception around the league of Jake Musson is pretty high. Like, I don't think he's just necessarily sort of an analytics darling anymore. I think, I think people generally yeah. like his game, but it seems like Barry just in terms of his offensive skill set and the point totals, I presume he's going to put up again next year. I think he had like 56 or something this year for the Avs. Like, stuff like that is, you can see him getting paid a quite a day. bit of money in free agency. And, and, you know, that was obviously a, a big time driving force for the Avalanche, especially with McCarr already in the lineup, with Sam Girard, with Bowen Byram coming probably as soon as next year, uh, or I guess in 2020, um, they wanted to get some value for Barry here because I think they probably looked at it and they're like, we don't want to be the ones picking up the tab for this when he's 28 or 29 and getting paid on the open market. So let's get a player that's going to help us right away. And we'll, we'll we'll save Kadri and and sort of what the Avalanche have done for a second here. But, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about Zaitsev there, and I know you're you mentioned how certain other teams would have stepped up to... To help the Leafs out there. I know you were very well-versed to talk about Zaitsev because I'm sure you were preparing for the Canucks potentially doing that as well. And so you were doing your homework on that end. But it's funny when you were talking about that and you were listing all the physical tools and sort of how if you just watch them and isolate them, you could talk yourself into this guy being a good player. But then you sort of look at the overall package and you're like, it's not adding up. And the numbers certainly suggest it's not adding up. I was like, is he talking about Cody Ceci or Nikita Zaitsev? (laughs) I I don't know which one he's talking about right now, but... They basically like you know they're slightly different players, but in terms of that, like yeah. they're big guys who skate well, and you're like, oh, this guy looks like you know a hockey jersey. He should be a pretty good player, and then he like touches the puck, and you're just like, oh my god, was that a was that a grenade or a hockey puck he had on his <laughs> stick? Good lord!
0: Yeah, and and that was really interesting um, to see CC coming back in in the in the in the Zaitsev trade, and I think what was even a little bit more surprising was that they're going to keep him around, and I can understand. Um, I can understand why um, they believe that way because, again, they still do need right-handed NHL defensemen, the Mm -hmm. Leafs. But it it surprises me. I thought that, especially with the salary that he would have commanded even on a one-year deal, and we'll see if he accepts the qualifying offer or not or if he goes to arbitration. But in CeCe's case, I thought the Leafs would have. And they still, I think... I think they still could, but um, I would have imagined that they would have tried to move him perhaps and then look to find another right handed defenseman to sort of fill in that void. But we'll see. I imagine he'll have to play top four minutes, especially with Travis Dermott injured.
1: Yeah, he will. He will. I mean, obviously, if you look at the guys who are eating big minutes for the Leafs last year, like, you know, he's gone. Yeah, he's gone. Dermott's going to miss at least a couple months. You know, Zeitz have obviously gone now. Uh, Gardner most likely yeah. will have walked and, and they bring in Tyson Berry, who can certainly eat a lot of those minutes and much more productively than a lot of those guys but yeah i i I imagine from the least perspective they're probably like you know they're they're viewing it as a sort of short-term minimal risk investment they obviously prioritize getting out from under zaitsev contract and i don't blame them considering how onerous it was over the next five years and you know for them they're probably like well we're gonna surround cc with better players and guys who can handle the puck and sort of make up for whatever he lacks in the puck moving department. And so maybe we can, you know, cover him up or strategically play this out. And who knows, maybe you wind up putting him in a position to shine and he looks good. And then you can wind up even going kind of redirecting him and moving him on to someone else for more than you want up paying for him. So we'll see how that works. But I, just because, you know, I think you and I, we generally like what a team like the Leafs is doing, you know, they're obviously investing heavily in analytics. They're looking at this stuff and you give them the benefit of the doubt. But I I have seen a little bit of like people kind of talking themselves into CC as well. Like, Oh, maybe he's not actually that bad. Cause like, it's very easy to beat up on a guy like that when he's on Ottawa, but then he goes to a team that people actually think of pretty highly. And you're like, Oh, well, if they see something, you know, there must be something there. And I I just have to admit, like, I have not seen any evidence from tape or from the numbers to suggest that he might actually be good. If, play him the right way like i think he's just i mean we've seen enough of him in the nhl right now to be like this is probably what he is i think from toronto's perspective cc wouldn't be that much of a downgrade on ron Hainsey yeah. so
0: i think from if you're looking at it from from that point of view well then if you put him alongside uh, morgan riley well then that's not a huge downgrade it's not as if you're going for, it's not as if you're saying well we're putting him we're putting him in jake gardner's role you're essentially looking at
1: him as well, hey Riley, you want to babysit this guy and <laughs> but that's that's a bizarre thing to me though. Like NHL's teams do that all the time, and I, and I, I get it. But do you not have like people in the AHL that could like be like occupying space on the ice, and you just never let them touch the puck? Like it seems weird to me. That it's like, oh, this guy's been in the NHL, so I guess he's better than guys who've been in the AHL. Like I don't know. Like, does he have any? Do we have any reasons to believe that he actually is better than like your generic above average AHL defenseman? I really don't.
0: I I. That's a great question to ask, and we'll only see when the league is a little bit more volatile and, and, and more fluid and, and more willing to take chances on AHL-type players. But if there is one reason to believe that he could perhaps not be a tire fire, mm. it's that he was put in a really bad position in Ottawa. He obviously took the brunt of the toughest defensive matchups on an atrocious team. and with um, with a def- who Did he play with Shabbat? I don't think he did. Did he?
1: I, I honestly don't know. I, I don't even want to look up the numbers. Looking yeah, at, but looking if, at the throughout, press, his,
0: throughout most of his sense tenure, he hasn't yeah. really played with a great right. left-handed defenseman. Yeah. So I think from from that perspective, again, you surround him with a little bit better players, and yeah. Leafs aren't in a position where they're going to be any, in any sort of difficulty to try and make the playoffs. Mm. So I think from from that perspective, too, Dubis, he just he has until the trade deadline if he wants to reinforce the right side and add another guy. So I I don't think it's an immediate concern, but if you're looking at it from all uh, from a well, what's going to happen next season in the playoffs? Well, then, yeah, I don't think you want Cody CeCe in your top four.
1: I mean, and well, another thing, and I think a big theme of this free agents period, and obviously, you know, this isn't groundbreaking news, but it's like teams that are in good financial positions and have a lot of resources were sort of like flexing their muscles a little bit. We'll talk more about the Rangers and how they structured Panarin's contract um, to take advantage of the fact that they are printing money. And with the Leafs, like, they could pay Nikita Zaitsev signing bonus and flip him to a team like Ottawa where it's like, oh, his caps his cap hit actually exceeds the real money we're gonna pay him over the next four years. That's that's a that's a positive asset for us. And it's like for a lot of these teams and for the Leafs especially, you view Nikita Zaitsev as a difficult asset that doesn't make sense on their team and they're gonna desperately try to get rid of and for Ottawa, they're just like clicking their Bring him on board here. I love it, baby. And, and so that's why I had the Senators as a big loser here, not to pile on them and not to beat them up. And there's nothing they really could have necessarily done this offseason where I'd be like, oh, wow, they really tra- changed the trajectory of their franchise. They're headed in the right direction. But when you have as much cap space and leverage as they did, and as we see all these moves happening, especially around the draft of teams that are up against it, shedding good players just to clear cap space, for them to really have nothing to show for... That so far, there's still time, but it's like Conor Brown is the only asset that they got for taking on SitesE's contract? Like why weren't they jumping on some of these other opportunities to trade for guys and buy them out, to stash guys to It just seems very weird to me, like, I don't know, I, I, I'm just left very underwhelmed, because obviously there was a great opportunity there for a, a creative GM and a creative team to be like, "We have so much empty cash space here that we can take all, all of your bad contracts." Just give us all of your picks and prospects. And they really did not do that at all.
0: Yeah, and we've seen in the past budget teams, how, how long was Arizona the dumping ground for all these terrible contracts from retired players? And yep. you saw, obviously, Carolina a few years ago when they were still rebuilding. They took on um, Beckel's contract and got Toivu Tervinen. And even this past offseason, you saw the Patty Marlowe contract moved. Yep. and they basically took on Eric Holla just because Vegas couldn't. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, opportunities, of course, still exist. I mean, I'm sure a team like Vancouver will want to move the Louis Erickson contract. Edmonton's pro- probably knocking on the door for Milan Lucic, perhaps even Calgary with James Niels' contract. Yep. So, opportunities still will present themselves, but I think Ottawa, certainly, they missed out on an opportunity here to be really aggressive and weaponize their cap space. And it's it's a way for teams to get a competitive edge nowadays because you're really at this point, you're not trading players. You're trading contracts is what someone, I can't remember who it was once said. And I tend to agree because you look at a guy like PK Subban going for pennies on the dollar. You look at Eric Kala going for pennies on the dollar. So I think a lot of, obviously I'm not suggesting that Ottawa should have taken those players on because those, those guys were for win now situations. But the point here is when, when you're in a situation where the cap means so much and there there are so many organizations right up against it if if you're a team like Ottawa, you should be inviting teams to send all their bad contracts and and add a lot of picks and prospects as sweeteners
1: well i mean the 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 cap basement for next season is set at sixty point two they're already at fifty point seven so you know it doesn't preclude them from obviously taking on more money, but it also does feel like there probably won't be uh too much incentive from ownership to actually far exceed that and, and really like proactively take on bad money, which is wild to me because the, of that 58.7, like 20 million of it includes goalies, Gabrick, Clark, MacArthur, and Dion Funafsbio. Like it's just the, they've created their own bad contracts. <laughs> it's it's man what what a situation uh they do have a lot of picks coming next year and and so there's some interesting young names so i don't want to beat up on them too much but i did have them as a bit of a loser there um do you want to talk a bit about the rangers
0: yeah i mean i think the situation that they've been in right now obviously the draft lottery really, really helps them in being able to get capo to me the rangers are clear winners yeah for one obviously or tell me Panarin, I think he's the exception when it comes to the, the landmines that are July 1st in terms of g- giving out big money and big term. And really, the, the problem you run into in free agency is when you pay good players or, or the, the second tier, um, when you give them hefty contracts. But I think if you're giving out that same term and money to elite players like Panarin, then that's a different situation because I look at Panarin he's to me he's a top 10 arguably top five winger, winger in the league since entering the NHL yep. only seven players have scored more points than him mm-hmm. and so there are other factors working in his favor as well as far as longevity because at 27 years old for one he's on the younger end of free agency um, and on top of that there's more reason to believe that he could age more gracefully than than most other players entering into their late 20s for one he's been extremely durable in, in the NHL I mean missing just six games total over the last uh four seasons and before that he was playing in the khl where he was on a much lighter 40 to 50 game schedule so i think from from that avenue his body's taken uh, a lot less mileage and there's also the fact that panarin's consistently been among the bottom 10 players in the league as far as hits made and received and so his elusiveness has put him in a position where he's been able to avoid unnecessary physical contract contact and that's Mm -hmm. really what breaks um, a lot of players down and so if you look at for example Dom Lucician's model of the Athletic, it suggests that Panarin can be a top-line caliber forward throughout his entire contract. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he was exactly that in his early 30s. So that's a big win. I think anytime, especially if you, you look at the Rangers' perspective right the situation right now, I think they're ready to turn things around quicker than a lot of people uh, realize. Obviously, the Jacob Truba trade was a steal, yeah. getting a, a top pair right-handed defenseman in his prime uh for just uh a first round pick it you'll take that any day of the week adam fox it was such a steal that these sirens
1: are coming to arrest you right now for talking i know i know
0: and then adam fox is another name that could it wouldn't surprise me if he was another top four defenseman yep. right away uh, obviously adding capo who could score 20, 25 goals, maybe, as early as next season. And then, of course, adding Artemi Panarin. And then you look at some of their younger players, Legis Anderson and Filip Hedel. I like those guys. They could take uh, bigger steps this. Uh, coming year and obviously they're they're still a ways away because they've got to add a number one center a lot of other areas to patch up but there are a lot of really intriguing pieces to build around the rangers and so it's really interesting to see how they've been able to stockpile picks parlay parlay them into into real assets in the truba and fox trades and then at the same time use free agency as a tool to attract
1: elite talent and do so in the past year and a half where yeah. you have some other teams, uh, you know, four or five years in still being like, oh, this takes time. You got to be patient. Well, like, oh, you can be patient, but you should probably have more to show for it after this long, after a team comes in and basically shows that in 18 months, if you have like a clear concerted vision and you're not going to go against it, you're just going to follow that. Like, it's pretty amazing what you can actually accomplish in this league. And and yeah, winning the lottery and, and getting Kako second overall certainly helps, but they stockpiled so many picks there by trading their veteran guys at the deadlines that they were able to set themselves up to go and trade for Jacob, to go and trade for Adam Fox. And so, you know, you mentioned those guys, they have Kraft's off and Shistorkin coming over from the KHL as well. We'll see what roles they play. But I mean, whenever you can get a guy like Panarin, I understand people balking at it because it is so much money and i think this rangers team is going to be much more fun to watch than actually competitive in terms of winning nhl games next season uh they still need to add certain assets before they can really take that next step as a team but you're right i think two three years from now i think he's still going to be a top of the line elite point producer at least for you if not anything else and will fit in very nicely on this team and be able to drive his own line from the wing and so I, I, I love the move. I, th- I think pretty clearly like it seems very captain obvious, but it's like, yeah, the Rangers are a big winner because they got the best player in free agency. And, and it was really interesting to see like, they gave him 74.5 million in signing bonuses of the 80 or he wound up getting total. And I, b- I believe that's the most that's ever been done. Like, I, I know Tavera has got like just over 70 uh, the year prior from the Leafs, and I remember at the time everyone was freaking out about that. And so um, you know, when you're the Rangers, it doesn't really matter to you. Give him seventy million dollars in straight up cash right now if you want. It's fine. It won't matter to you one way or another. And for him, it's like, all right, I, yeah, I would much rather take this than have like year by year base salaries and who knows what happens. Get bought, bought out if there's a lockout. So it's kind of a win win from that perspective. And I imagine that probably was a big driving force for his decision. Like he clearly wanted to play in the New York market, but when it came to, I know a lot of it was made of like the Islanders technically offered a bit more. It's like, there's no way they were going to offer it structured the way the Rangers.
0: Yeah. And it's the advantage of being a big, bigger market team. And, and that's really in, in a cap role, you have to try and find as many inefficiencies as possible in ways to, um, flex your, muscle and you see it with a lot of other organizations like the leafs they invest so much into the into their scouting their facilities their their player development skills coaches down in the minors there are ways to try and even though you can't exceed the cap there there are other avenues to leverage to be able to create an enticing um to be an enticing destination and the rangers definitely did
1: that and i think over the next two years they're they're shedding $35 million in uh, cap commitments between Lundqvist. I mean, obviously, yeah, I don't want to use the term shedding, but he's making eight point five, and obviously that'll that'll come in handy. To use elsewhere, Shattenkirk, Mark Stahl, Matt Bolesky, um, Ryan Strom, and Vladimir Mesnikov. So I wouldn't necessarily characterize any of those guys as foundational cornerstones for them moving forward. And so they just spend a lot of money on Panarin, and they have a bunch of young guys that are eventually going to have to pay. But there's also the element that, like, they're going to have more room to work with here in a couple of years when a lot, a lot of these young guys come up for their second deal. So I'm not too worried about the fact that they just like financially hamstrung themselves, even though they aren't ready to compete next year or the year after.
0: Yeah, I mean, the future is really bright with the Rangers. There's no denying that with the way they've set this rebuild up and... It's going to be really exciting to see them and see exactly how quickly they can progress. And it'll depend a lot on the development of their prospects and younger younger players because they don't have a ton of established talent right now, but definitely a fun team
1: to watch moving forward. Okay. We're 40 minutes in. Can we talk about offer sheets now and yeah. uh, Sebastian Aho and, and Canadians and the Hurricanes? I'm, I'm going to lead this one to start because I, I have a, a big rant to get off my chest. You can jump in. That's after, but... <laughs> Man, the the league has, has conditioned us as fans and observers of it. It's beaten us down emotionally so much with low expectations and the bare minimum in terms of entertainment value from a transactions perspective that when a team does finally sign a player to an offer sheet, like the buzz on July 1st when that happened was like insane. Like people were freaking out. They're like, oh my God, they finally did it. Like, wow, it's happening. It's happening. The floodgates are open. And then you like... Take one second to actually think about it and look at it, the details, and you're like, my goodness, this was an absolutely horrendous offer sheet. And I feel very confident in saying that the Montreal Canadiens got pay- played quite, quite nicely by Sebastian Ajo and his agent. And I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure a lot of it is sort of posturing and sort of trying to save face and kind of a PR spin for Mark Bergevin when he comes out with that press conference and he's talking about how Ajo made it clear to him that he wanted to be in Montreal. He wanted to be a Canadian. He wanted to play for them. But if you look at this, I can't help but feel like, and, and I, you know what? I'm not taking the, the Hurricanes off the hook here either, because then they also came out with their own PR spin of like, "Aha! They fell into our trap. They did exactly what we wanted, and we were masterminds, and we were planning this all along." And I'm not buying that either. I think both teams wind up looking bad here. I think the big winner is Sebastian Aho, who now gets this five-year deal, which means that at age 26, he will be hitting the open market as an unrestricted free agent. He gets. What I would describe as, even though they were restricted free agent years, um, under market value, I think his value to the Hurricanes or whichever team he would have wound up playing for exceeds the 8.5 or whatever, just under nine that he's going to be making against the cap for those years. But he gets that. He basically gets what, like the 21 or 22 million dollar payout in the one calendar year. He gets a ton of money up front. He doesn't have to spend all summer. Worrying about it with it hanging over his head, thinking about what's going to happen, where is he going to be playing, what are the Hurricanes going to give him. And so, from his perspective, like it's a no brainer, and he's really the one big winner here. And people keep, just because we think about the NHL, it's not as much of a player driven league. So, it's not like the NBA where we're like talking about it more from a player's perspective. So, I've seen a lot of like what like who won this? The Canadians or the Hurricanes? It's like no, like the big winner here was Sebastian Aho because he gets he basically gets his cake now. And he gets his cake and he gets to eat it too. Like he's getting the money now, but he's also going to get so much more money down the line.
0: Yeah, and I think this is going to be really interesting because I wonder how it's going to affect a lot of the other RFA uh, negotiations because now this is the second time we've seen a five year term for a high profile uh, restricted free agent. You first saw it, of course, with Austin Matthews, and I think this is really where. Where players are realizing that on their second contracts they they want to use their leverage because when you 're hitting the open market at twenty seven twenty eight after say a a, se- a seven year um, commitment on your second contract, well then you're not going to make as much because you're you're exiting your prime and so from from that perspective. It really is interesting to see that players are, are finding ways to use more leverage. And I think it's better for the direction of the league yep. because it's really sad looking at Nathan McKinnon or Mark Shifley making just over $6 million and they're locked in these long term contracts. Even look at Connor McDavid, yeah. 12 and a half, and, and he's yeah. got his entire prime sucked up in a, in a really tough situation there in Edmonton. So. I think this could really, if anything, as far as opening the flood floodgates, I think it could really start fluctuating the term that we see. Now, perhaps maybe Mika Rantanen, uh, Brock Besser, uh, Mitch Marner. I, I think it wouldn't surprise me, even um, Matthew Kachuk, to settle for shorter term deals that we, than we've come to expect. And so I, I just can't understand why Montreal thought they had a legit chance of, of getting Aho in this offer sheet because... 20, I can understand the twenty-one or twenty-two million upfront, and why that specifically is what might create difficulties right. uh, for the Hurricanes. But they really like if you really wanted to press them. There's no point of an offer sheet if you don't think you have a legit chance of getting that player. Yeah. And looking at the figure that he got, I would have pushed up definitely to the next compensation level. Yeah, up top until
1: twelve, ten point five or whatever. Like it's just an extra first, right? I think it's two firsts. Yeah, a and second, it makes it that much more. Yeah. Uh, plausible for the Hurricanes too, because a first, second, and third for your franchise player, the Hurricanes would never, especially after the year they had. Like, can you imagine? Like, if you're going to do that, if you're going to be like, we can't front 21 millions of million dollars for our best player, and we're going to just take another step back and get three picks after we just had this amazing season where we drew fan interest, where we were the talk of the league for large stretches of it, where we were just this young, exciting team with a bright future. Like, it's like the biggest slap in the face of your fans at that point. Like you may as well just just sell the team, just move if that 's the case, and that 's not going to be the case like there 's a zero percent chance they 've already announced they 're obviously going to match it if they haven 't technically filed the paperwork yet, but I, this was a, like literally a zero second thought process from them i don 't care about the upfront money like that 's why it was such a it was such a weak offer sheet from the Canadians perspective. If you make it ten point four five per year. I can I can understand a little bit. It's like, okay, we're getting into double digits here. They're still probably going to match it, but at least at that point. Yeah, and it's an extra think. first round pick. You're like, okay, well, we at least need to have a conversation. This was like literally like, John Wigel probably heard about it and he's like, okay, yeah, next. Like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, don't even, you don't even need to run it by anyone. That's how silly it was. And so that's what I wonder, like what the end game was there. Like it literally like, if there's 0% chance of that player accepting it, you're not financially hamstringing the, the hurricanes where it's like, Oh, now they're going to be up against it with the cap. They were going to give them less money. And now they're going to have to sell off a, a good player. It's just to make it work. Like there's just no positive net positive here for the, for the Canadians. So I guess like they didn't necessarily lose anything, but at the same time they didn't gain anything. And just like, there was a lot of buzz for something that ultimately won't amount to much of anything.
0: Yeah. And I think if you talk about offer sheets more than anything, it's the middle tier of players that are really susceptible. I think right. anytime you're talking about the, the, upper echelon players, I don't I don't think that you really realistically have a shot at getting any of them. So I know Travis Yost has been a big proponent of this, of the dual offer sheets. Yeah. And you could have obviously it wouldn't have been possible now that Toronto had uh they had moved out Marlowe's contract, but you you dual offer sheet in Andreas uh Andreas Jansen and Kesberry Capen, and well, all of a sudden they're in a little bit of a uh, in a little little bit of a flux or you look at San Jose with Timo Meyer and Kevin LeBanc, you, say, offer sheet Meyer in the first, second, and third range, and then LeBanc in the step below, yeah. and then, then you're really starting to make it tough for the other team, especially considering that that's a player, realistically, that San Jose, they'd probably be willing to move one of those guys if they're really in a, in a cap uh, crunch at that point, although Pavelski did leave, but... Right. I just don't
1: understand offer sheets unless they are coming. Like, what out do you a accomplish? In of yeah, year. yeah, yeah. It's and and also the Hurricanes as well. Like yeah, I mentioned earlier, they're like, oh, like you know, we this was our plan all along. Like they fell right into our trap. It's like no, they pretty clearly they were will, they were ready to not walk away from Aho, um, but they were ready to drag this thing out a little bit. I think because they really did want to buy up at least a year or two of unrestricted free agency on Aho and keep the figure at what it is now and get a couple extra more expensive years. And for Aho, as we mentioned, what Matthews did and what I think more star players are going to do, it doesn't really make sense to do so. So, He was gonna be ready to play this thing out as well, and so they basically just had to find a team that was gonna kind of force Carolina's hand to pay him immediately, and they wound up doing that, and so that's why they're the big winners. They expert like if anyone expertly played this, it's Aho and his agent, and it winds up working out well for them. and And you know, we'll see if any of those other offer sheets do come down the pike. But um, yeah, I it it just it's it's sad that uh, this was such a big talking point and it was such a divisive topic and. Canadians fans are so mad at me and, and anyone that was suggesting that this was uh, kind of an empty calorie offer sheet that wasn't going to wind up coming out. And then they started, you know, citing their original, original six status and how the Hurricanes are a joke of a franchise and don't make any money and they're poor and all this stuff. And it's like, I it just devolved into this whole like perfect encapsulation of why the NHL can be the absolute worst sometimes.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> I saw some really interesting debates yeah. there. Um, but yeah, I just, especially, there's no doubt anytime you offer sheet a guy, there is going to be ripple effects on both sides. I think from Montreal's Avenue, they certainly are going to be like anytime you do offer sheet another player, you are leaving yourself susceptible to the point where in the future, Carolina could be in a situation where they they want to seek vengeance for what they did so carolina's gonna start flexing their financial might <laughs> maybe if they maybe if they do uh drive up that playoff revenue yep. but and then from carolina's too i mean say what you want about them being happy about the negotiations not driving out but the fact of the matter is their star player did sign with another team even if there was realistically very little chance that he would have actually gone over to Montreal. But I think especially among the fan base, there is going to be a little bit of a ripple effect. And we've seen, for example, you saw Ryan O'Reilly sign that offer sheet with Calgary. And then eventually he did move out and, same thing with Shea Weber. Obviously, I don't think Carolina is going to be in any sort of a rush to move Aho, but no. I do wonder if that affects the relationship at all in, in the longer-term picture when you're talking uh, four or five years down the line and, and he's entering, uh, he's about to hit unrestricted free agency. Maybe then the, uh, some of the dynamic changes, but I do
1: think there's some sort of uh, an effect on both teams in the end, but I don't think it's a big one. Well, I hope there, I hope there isn't that sort of uh souring because you mentioned like yo you're not trade you're not trading players you're trading contracts earlier like it it this is a business and it's like it's understandable i i see uh the perspective from both the Hurricanes as a team that's trying to get the best deal they can here and aho as a player trying to maximize his earning power and get paid immediately as well and so it's from both sides i think yeah it's the Optics wise it's not great when your best player signs a deal a deal like that with another team, but the end result is Aho gets what he wanted, and the Carolina Hurricanes got a bargain deal for the next five years as their best player is signed to a figure that's going to be below what he's actually worth and so we'll see five years is a long time and a lot can change between now and then, but I do think if you'd look at it from that perspective it's kind of like a much to do about nothing because both sides kind of came out okay here, even if the path there was a bit trickier than you usually see in the NHL. Um, let's do a, a couple more quick teams rapid fire here before we get out of here. I wanted to talk about the Hurricanes a bit. We sort of mentioned Kadri earlier and how uh, that trade affected it from a Leafs perspective. I, I really love that that trade happened because so many times in the NHL, we hear it's like, from NHL GMs that are just not doing much. It's like, it's really hard to make these trades and they make it sound like it's like astrophysics or rocket science. It's like, oh my God, like how can they make all these pieces fit? And it's like the Avs had a very clearly defined need for a second line center and they probably were not going to get that player in free agency based on the players that were available. The Leafs had a very clear need for someone who can eat defensive minutes and do it productively. And from a fit perspective, as you mentioned, the Leafs, Having Kadri as their third center was kind of like a a point of diminishing returns where they weren't getting the most out of him because of who he was playing with. I think, having played, I think his three most common line mates last year were Patrick Marlowe, Connor Brown, and Nikita Zaitsev in terms of guys who played most of the 5 on 5. I think he's probably going to play with better players in Colorado. And so I'm sure he'll get back to maybe not the 30 goal status he was the two years prior, but be a 20 ish, 25 goal guy with defensive value who represents a very clear upgrade for Colorado who didn't really have much down the middle beyond McKinnon in terms of surefire guys that can eat big minutes. And so I think both teams improved here, kind of dealt from an area of strength to improve an area of weakness. And I thought it was a very fair, fair, very well-structured trade. And I really, I want to see more of that because that's the type of stuff where it's like, no one's trying to rip anyone off here. No one's trying to, you know, pull off any shady stuff. It's like two teams just made themselves better in a very logical manner.
0: Yeah, I think it's absolutely a a win-win for both teams, especially because you consider... I was actually thinking about this a few days before the trade. I was... Especially when you heard a lot of the Tyson Berry chatter at the draft and whether he was potentially going to be on the move there. I just figured that Colorado would be wise to test the market and definitely move on from Berry because with the blue line that they've got set up right now, especially on that right side, they've got McCar and Connor Timmins is going to come up. Barry at whatever he would have commanded the seven, eight, seven or 8 million. It just wouldn't have made sense. So I think moving him now was important as opposed to at the trade deadline, you could have been left in a situation with the Leafs where with James Van Reemsdyke where you're renting your own player. And I just don't think that that would be the best case from an asset yep. management perspective. So they got some sort of value out of Barry in the immediate short run. And then to address their most pivotal need up the middle of Nazem Kadri, it's, it's commendable. And then it's a nice piece of business. Yeah. And then you add a depth defenseman in, in Cali Rosen, Mm -hmm. third
1: round pick. I think it's a very even trade on both sides. Well, and you look at it. So what, what else that Colorado have on? I think maybe, Um, you know, when they went into it, especially after they dumped Soderbergh's contract as well, you're thinking, oh man, this team is like 30 million in cap space or whatever. Like they could be a big player. We heard that they put together a pretty compelling offer for and I think they didn't, they balked at the idea of committing to seven years, which makes plenty of sense. They gave him a very competitive offer for four years. And I was really sort of interesting to see that. And, and, and the fact that I imagine he actually did have to consider it. And so you know, they, they take that flyer and Burakovsky who's still only twenty-four years old and I still think has untapped potential, even though it's been a rough couple of years for him. They get uh Yunus Donskoy um for four years three point nine per and he was kind of one of He actually wound up getting more than I thought he would, but for the for the Avs, since they did have so much disposable income there to play with, um, it's fine to overpay him a little bit as a as a UFA and he's gonna come in and immediately um be like a very reliable play driving winger for them. They bring in Pierre Edward Belmar as sort of that like traditional fourth line center. And so all of a sudden you have all these pieces to coming together and they still have 27 million in cap space. I'm not, I, they're probably not going to use it all. They're probably going to plan this out a, a bit ahead and be like, you know, a couple of years from now, we will wind up having to pay Landis Gog and McKinnon and. And, um you know Makar and all these guys more money than they're making right now, so we want to keep our financial flexibility, but pretty much they just sign they have to sign Ranton and comfort for Brokovskidora all of was RFAs. and that's like a a pretty like nice like tidy uh summer for them in terms of improving their team while also not necessarily really um you know diminishing any future possibilities for them either
0: yeah, the one thing that I really like is a lot of times you see for example with with Florida. A team with a ton of cap space going in and saying, "Well, we have all this space; might as well spend it." And that's that's what really stuck out to me. They didn't overpay dramatically for a contract that they might regret. I mean, I look at Donscoy as someone who was a bit marginalized in San Jose right. just because there were so, so many deep players yeah. up front, yeah. and I think he could absolutely be a really quality middle six guy. You look at his point production on a per hour basis. He was clearly producing in a second line clip. And it wouldn't surprise me if he was a 40 point winger who also brings a ton of transitional and play driving value. And then I also really like Andre Burakovsky. I think again, he was marginalized in Washington. He played on the fourth line for much of the season for the caps and he didn't get any power play minutes. And again, on a per hour basis at five on five, he scored at a second line clip. So I think, and even on his, As far as his career pace, he scored at a 35, 36 points per 82-game clip. And a second and a third I, I thought was a little bit steeper than I would have imagined given right. the, the type of year Berkowski had. But there's a lot of upside there as well. So I think the biggest thing Colorado really accomplished was they added a legit second line. Their top nine is rounding out quite nicely. They have a lot more depth after that um, super... Super McKinnon line, yep. so that is really key, and they did so without mortgaging the future. Yep. They did so without taking on any, any, any big risk in free agency, so I like the offseason that they had.
1: Another team that I like was the Stars. I guess there's not like too much to say about it, because it's like, in theory, I'm not sure like how much they improved, but the fact that they got all these guys older players obviously and there's obviously risk involved with any player that's in their mid-30s in terms of what they're going to look like next season and whether the wheels are going to completely come off or or how much they'll have to offer but like for example I thought uh Joe Pavelski and some of the rumors were like he was going to get that fourth or fifth year from teams while not necessarily sacrificing much in the terms of AAV and and so for the stars it's like yeah seven million is is on the high side but it is only the three years and I believe that that third year is pretty much entirely uh, base salary as well. So, you know, you, you'll be able to get out of that. You'll be able to to, to buy it out potentially or, or move it on. If at that point he's like 37 and just doesn't have it anymore. But, you know, they get Sekera and Corey Perry for one year each. They obviously are both coming off pretty serious injuries. But both guys, I do still think in obviously diminished roles, have something to offer. And for one year at 1.5 each, it's like if they don't, whatever. You just you swung and missed. You don't really have to pay for it. and so. They also didn't bite the bullet on on the Zuccarello contract, yeah. and the, the Wild uh, are a big loser because they gave him that five year deal at age thirty two. But from the Stars' perspective, it was like kind of like a double whammy because it was they also don't lose a future first because they because of the clause, the condition in the in the trade they made with the Rangers. So it's like they retain that, they get a second line guy who can produce a pretty replicable amount i think maybe even a bit more in terms of the power play usage and stuff like that and so that was like that was a, n- a nice piece of work i thought by Jim Know where it's like it's pretty pretty clearly sort of a win now team over the next couple of years with a lot of the players they have and they've invested in in the contracts and they're going to go for it over these next couple of years and then we'll see where they're at two through three years from now but they didn't necessarily have to pay some sort of ridiculous price and give guys term just to make their team better for next
0: yeah. And especially you look at Pavelski, obviously there's risk. Anytime you sign a guy who's 30, I, th- I think he's turning 35 or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he last season was his least productive in a long while as far as points. And he still put up 64 goals. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's still a phenomenal season. So I think even if you project a little, little bit of a decline, you're still looking at a uh, top line guy at worst, a second line type forward. So, for the next two years i 'm hundred percent sure that they 're really going they 're going to like that value and maybe in the third year you you, do, you don 't think that perhaps it 's uh, not very efficient cost uh, cost wise but again, as you said, at that point it 's something that you could buy out and you didn 't have to pay that fourth or fifth year and really that Zuccarello contract that was especially given the wilds direction really didn't make sense to me.
1: Yeah. Like if you're Paul Fenton. Like, I I don't, it's a scary thought to try and put yourself in their headspace and their mindset and be like, what were they thinking? But it's like where I love Zuccarello as a player. I think I've been a big fan of him throughout his career. a very productive player. I thought he was amazing for the stars in that postseason run he had. Like if you're the wild with where you're at right now, where are you getting exactly with that deal? And, to what level do you think he pushes you to and why are you trying to reach whatever level that is like the rationale behind it is just bizarre. And I think you and I would both agree that that's like the most frustrating thing as an analyst and as a fan in the sport. It's like when teams make these moves that it just like the logic doesn't add up.
0: Yeah. I just don't understand the direction of the wild at this point because they sort of have their foot on both sides where, they made a couple of rebuild type moves, yeah. trading uh, Mikhail Granlin, for example, for Kevin Fiala and. And Coyle for Donato. And Coyle yeah. for Donato. So they got a little bit younger there. But then you also heard about the next uh, Jason Zucker deal that would have seen them bring Phil Kessel to the mix. Or and, Michael for a week before or, that. Yeah, like, and so. I don't understand where exactly they're going because they haven't really committed to a full rebuild, and I can understand why it's a little bit tough to do so with the Ryan Souter and Zach Prise contracts but in one way or another, I think they really needed to commit to a direction and I, it's it's a little bit depressing from from the wilds perspective because they don't have a lot of a lot coming through the prospect pipeline either so' right. you're, you, you're left in a situation where you've got uh, you've got some good veterans but you don't have any uh productive youth on the way and i just don't see how they're gonna position themselves to be a, a long-term contender
1: well i feel comfortable saying that your theory about uh gm's weakening uh the team they're currently running to, uh, to help <laughs> themselves in the future i don't yeah. think paul fendon's gonna have to worry about his uh next gm job because i i don't see that happening yeah. based on how the past uh, couple the past year or so has gone for him um yeah one final note on the stars there so you know, with the Zuccarello thing, I was mentioning the playoffs and sort of just, it was really eye-opening seeing how, because uh, that team was such a one-line team for such a majority of the year. And then seeing Zuccarello come in there and how he like unlocked Rupe hints and gave them the second line and just how much better they were as a team after that. The reason why I'm excited about that is, you know, you bring in Pavelski and we I think he's going to be fine on the power play. I think it's definitely fair to wonder at 5-on-5, five five, we've seen the diminishing shot rates, we... At 35, you know, eventually that's probably the area of the game that's going to slip more so than his production around the net where his faunted hand-eye coordination with tip shots and rebounds will probably help him be productive for a couple more seasons. You know, at 5 5 they'll be able to, I think, mask him a bit more because they're just going to... I imagine what they're gonna do is they're gonna put him with Sagan and Ben on the top line and they're gonna bump Rajlov down to like this like super uh play driving defensive line with Rupe hints where like those guys are gonna create offense, but I imagine like they're gonna be used much more for for the heavy lifting as opposed to whatever Pavelski and, and Ben who's also kinda of on the wrong side of his career alongside with Sagan where you're just gonna unleash those guys to score as much as humanly possible for you.
0: Yeah. And I like that idea because you're sort of balancing that scoring throughout your top six, because it it would be awesome to throw a Radulov on that top line. But the reality of the situation is you only have so many of those talented offensive producers. And so I think if if you want to maximize the value of a Pavelski or or a Jamie Ben who had a down year, then I think you do have to look at a circumstance where you perhaps deploy them in a more sheltered role. And, and like you said, put, put that second line with hints and um and radulov in a situation where they're doing a little bit more of that heavy lifting and if you're doing that well then i think the top six is put in a situation where they they have that one line that can take on some of the secondary competition and really unleash offensively while that uh while that quote-unquote second line is taking on the brunt of yeah they're probably to be like the actual
1: top line Yeah. yeah yeah no i agree with that completely um so I've got I've got Penguins Oilers and Blackhawks here in terms of teams I wanted to talk about. Let's do like 2 minutes on, yeah. on each of those. Which one do you want to start off with? I know you want to talk about the Penguins a little.
0: bit. Yeah, I just I think we can both agree for a guy that hasn't scored 15 goals or 30 points in his career, 6 years 3.5 million annually for Brandon Tanev is a huge head scratcher.
1: Yeah. Well, so I so uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I think this is like a great uh sort of litmus test not necessarily like obviously I think casual fans don't always like just because they don't know a certain player doesn't necessarily mean that they're not good. Like obviously as yes, we've with analytics movement, there's a lot of guys who don't put up a lot of point totals who can still be very productive players for you in terms of moving the possession needle. But I was, uh, for July 1st for this past long weekend, I was in, uh, I went on a little bit of a vacation. I was out on, on the Island and I was like, I brought on my laptop and I was doing a little work by the beach and everyone there, there was a bunch of families staying with us and, and everyone there obviously knew what I do for a living. And so as the day was going on, they were like coming by and asking me like, oh, what's the latest news? Who signed for what? And I'm, you know, I'm telling them to the Rangers, I'm telling them to the Panthers and all this and that. And then at one point, I, I, I just started like telling people, I was like, yeah, Brandon Tana have got six years, 20 plus million. And like literally everyone I told told, told that to was like, who? <laughs> like what? Six? Like, they was like flabbergasted. And you know what? I cover hockey for a living and I am also flabbergasted. By
0: it. Yeah. And I think, you talked about there are a lot of situations where you have a lot of these underrated possession drivers and and the the worst part is that Brandon Tanev isn't that. I mean, you look at his numbers away from Adam Lowry and Andrew Kopp, who are extremely strong possession drivers. Tanev's numbers, his shot shares have been extremely poor away from those guys. So I think you a lot of GMs can fool themselves into looking at that super line in the bottom six for the Winnipeg Jets and encircling Brandon Tanev's name as a key cog for that When In reality, he was more of the complimentary piece, just riding shotgun with those two play drivers. And so... And it's especially frustrating if you're a Penguins fan because last season you obviously saw Jack Johnson's contract,
1: and I didn't think they, that they could top that. And it seems like they have with the Tanner one. What an amazing piece of work by Brandon Tanner's agent. I'm gonna have to contact him to see if he can uh, strike some deals for me. I mean, 14 goals, 29 points, both career highs for him last year. I guess well-timed production for him as a free agent. But yeah, I believe he also gets like he gets a one million dollar signing bonus for all six of those years. And it's like, man, he is that it's, it's interesting. And, and it bumps me up from a, from a Penguins perspective, because I remember a couple of years ago, I looked at sort of their financial books in terms of how they were allocating their cap space. And it was, you know, they clearly are invested in, like, they were very top heavy with Malkin, and Crosby and Latang, right. And then you look down the lineup and they weren't really giving term or real dollars to any of that supporting cast because they sort of realized that when you have those couple top guys, you need to be kind of Careful with what you do, how you fill out around them and and you're better off sort of just bringing in guys to play alongside them as opposed to paying premiums for the supporting cast and they've completely done a one eighty since then where i don 't know what's happened, but you know taking on Good Branson's contract trade uh, signing jack Johnson taking on buke's dad's contract um you know they signed Hornquist to a massive deal which they're already reportedly trying to get out of now they signed Tana to the six year deal and it's like I think that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves. It's when teams give massive term to these guys that are ultimately expendable pieces because what are the chances that over the next six years they're going to be happy with this signing? Like I guarantee that it might be as soon as next year, as we saw with Jack Johnson and how quickly uh, they are regretting that. It might be a couple years from now where something else comes up and they're up against it financially, but I guarantee there's going to reach a point during this contract where they're going to be like, Wow, I can't believe we're still paying them for this many more years. And it's going to make it that much more difficult for them to maintain that flexibility, which you need when you're giving such crazy amounts of money to just a couple guys at to the top of your roster. I just don't understand what what, what the uh, what flipped the script for.
0: Rutherford after he won those back-to-back cups because it seems like for whatever reason he had like that Penguins team won because they had a ton of speed and skill and they had youth on entry-level contracts they were financially very astute as far as not overpaying for their depth pieces and very careful as you mentioned about term and, and those sorts of things and then after that you even saw for example Trading the first round pick in the Ryan Reeves trade, it just seemed as if Rutherford wanted to change the identity of a back to back Stanley Cup winner for yep. some reason. And I think that comes out in this Tanev contract too, because he, a lot of what must have enticed, t- enticed them with Tanev or with Eric Branson or with Jack Johnson are those physical tools and those intangibles, the quote unquote pushback and uh it just seems like they've handcuffed themselves for the foreseeable future desiring with with qualities that may or may not actually be helping them win the hockey games
1: well as we transition to the Oilers um I had them as a loser. I mean, there's only so so much they could have done from the perspective of like Shirely left them such a stink bomb financially that it was like, and I get from Colin's perspective, it's like, you know, we're going to take a slow build here. I want to sort of figure out what we have exactly to work with. And there's no need to make any impulsive, crazy decisions. But for them to basically just bring back the team that they had last year as of now um, is stunning to me that you could reconcile that and potentially risk just throwing another peak Connor mcdavid season out the window i mean you look at what they did and they bought out Sekera. they paid two million for mike smith to be their backup they brought in uh the worst m grandland um who we've seen quite a bit of here locally in vancouver they brought back alex chasson they brought in thomas Yurko for a one-year deal just under a million dollars like they basically I know they were linked to guys like Brett Connolly, and I think they had, especially after they bought out Sekera, you, you, you thought like, oh, like they get kind of frisky here and maybe add at least one, if not two, like middle six wingers that when you put them with Connor McDavid and Leandre Seidel, they can produce like top line wingers just because of how good those guys are. And they didn't do any of that. And, and I'm just left very, um, kind of like underwhelmed and disappointed that we are facing the prospects of another year of the Oilers having that same disappointing supporting cast around a couple of really, really great players. Yeah. And I
0: think even the trade market, there were a couple opportunities there with Burakovsky and you know, Eric Holla. I'm not sure how willing Vegas would have been to move him to a divisional opponent, but to me, Hollow would have made a ton of sense as far as someone who could have conceivably, conceivably been that third line center. If you want to throw a, a Ryan Nugent Hopkins um, or Leon Dreisaitl on the wing and, and they needed to add that middle tier type wingers if it was a Don Donskoy or if it was a Connolly. And it just seems that they didn't do that. And again, either through the trade or the free agent market, they needed to add some sort of depth so that they, I mean, they they arguably even had, um, if you look at a lot of the gold differentials, one of the worst bottom sixes in the league and they didn't really address that. They're still looking at Sam Gagne potentially centering their third line. They didn't add any wingers to try and play with Connor McDavid. Even if it was like a Brandon Peary type yeah. uh, low-risk gamble They or even a Tyler Ennis, they just didn't sign anyone that could have conceivably... Um, they didn't roll the dice on someone that could have no. been a potential fit alongside one of their really talented centers in the top six.
1: Yeah, they basically rolled it back. I mean you know, there's still, uh, names available. I mean, as we wrap this up and, and, you know, we're not going to devote too much time to this because as I said, at the top of the show, by the time we post this, some of these guys might already have new homes, but, you know, especially with like a guy like Randy Zingle or something, it would be just so interesting to me from a fit perspective of like, he has the speed to keep up with a guy like McDavid and then he has an upper echelon shot as well. And so just the idea of a guy with, Getting extra space and passes right uh, in his wheelhouse from Connor McDavid seems so interesting, but who knows what's going to happen there? And if you look at the remaining names that are left, like hopefully we will see some, um, you know, fireworks with some of the RFA's. They're obviously the most notable names. Jake Gardner still doesn't have a home. Marcus Johansson, surprisingly, still looking for a, for a new home. Zingle as I mentioned, Michael Ferland. I mean, it's pretty. It's 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 pretty limited. It's pretty slim pickings. I think honestly, my favorite guy uh reportedly available is probably uh rfa nikita gusev because it does sound like uh vegas just will not be able to come to terms with them on a deal they don't have the type of money to to sign him what he's looking for and for any other team out there as we just mentioned with like teams getting creative and finding new ways to hit home runs with low risk guys i think a guy like gusev who i imagine the acquisition costs won't be too high considering vegas just traded miller for Colin miller for a future second and a future fifth um they're kind of hands are tied there financially. And for Gusev's perspective, I can't imagine he's asking for that much on this deal. Like It seems like at age 27, he'd probably prefer a couple-year show-me deal where he proves to teams that he can play at the NHL level. So if your team out there is still looking for scoring, uh, it's pretty limited. But there are a couple names there that I just mentioned that uh, would be interesting to at least look into.
0: Yeah, Gusev would be really interesting for a team like Buffalo or Carolina or even Edmonton to roll the dice on because he's been... Extremely productive in yeah. the KHL, and obviously the, a lot of those guys are hit and miss. But you look at the type of home run season and impact that Alexander Radulov's had after many years yeah. in Russia. Panarin, obviously. Panarin, I mean, it, it can work out, and and there's to me, especially you mentioned the acquisition cost. That, that to me is a is a low risk potential uh, potential high uh, high upside move to be had there. And again, I just. I see someone who's extremely skilled in yep. Yusev and, and was, of course, remarkably productive in the KHL. I don't see a lot of question marks as far as why his game
1: wouldn't be able to translate to the NHL level. Well, and he's looked look great in his limited like international viewings as yeah. well, in the World Championships and the Olympics, obviously. And so, yeah, you're right. I think like it's so hard to come by like legitimate game-changing talent and for what you'd... Pr- Realistically, have to pay both Vegas to get his rights and then him assign him as an RFA, it seems like at the risk. And there are a couple teams here, like, you know, the Avs, we mentioned, the Devils, Blue Jackets, like, there are teams out there that. Uh, I mean, every team can use more skill, I guess, other than maybe like Tampa Bay and Toronto, but you know, these teams could use more skill. They have a bunch of financial resources left to play with. And so there still are ways to improve your team out there, even though uh, most of the money has been spent. Most of the interesting names are off the board and we're going to be slowly transitioning here to a more quiet period of the season.
0: Yeah. And and again, it's about finding creative ways to improve your team market inefficiencies and I, I again there's very little risk in in picking up a guy like gusev and there's only like realistically this guy could be the ceiling if you put him alongside a talented center and that that to me that could be a, a great you're gonna get great bang for your buck even if it doesn't work out exactly as uh, how you might envision it the acquisition cost just won't be that uh, expensive
1: yep all right harman um Let's get out of here. Plug some stuff. What uh, what are you working on? Where can people check out your work? And uh, what can we look forward to from going forward?
0: I so I write for the Athletic Vancouver. I uh, wrote a lot about the Tyler Myers signing and then some of the recent moves that nice. Vancouver has made. Um, moving forward, obviously it's a little bit of a quiet time in the off season. So I'm not working on a ton right now, but again, you can just check out my work at the athletic. You can follow me on Twitter at Harman dial two, H A R M H a
1: R M a N D. Who's dial one two. So. Who's, who's, who's the first one, though? Who's Harman Dial one?
0: No, two is just, it's my birthday. Oh, okay, nice. So okay. I was, nice. like, okay.
1: I was yeah. thinking there was like, you know, another Harman Dial we should be following then. And maybe I should have contacted him for this podcast. <laughs> um, all right, man. Well, this is a blast. I'm glad we finally got to do this. And uh, definitely recommend everyone checks out your work. And uh, we'll check back in with you. Uh, maybe as the season starts, we'll do a, a bit of a Canucks deep. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Cheers, man.
0: On Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash